evidence and answers. Darwin's theory is built on the premise that hundreds of beneficial mutations occurred in a species over time to create new body parts and organs to create a new species. However, are mutations beneficial? What does science teach us about mutations? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, we will be concluding Pat's interview with his guest, Dr. Reginald Sang, one of the top neonatologist doctors in the world, as they discuss the facts on biological mutations and other scientific aspects of Darwin's theory. I mean, I'll give you a few examples of how this thing is strange. I mean, if you remember in school, they probably told you that, wow, there's this great mutation called sickle cell. Right. With sickle cell, you'll be better protected against malaria, etc. So look at this good mutation. But by the way, it's about the only mutation that they actually ever advertise. So as so-called good. But this good one, nowadays, is under attack. Our National Institutes of Health is putting in millions and millions of dollars to what? To eradicate sickle cell. Why are you eradicating it if it's a good one? Well, sickle cell unfortunately kills people and it makes people's lives miserable. And when I'm a pediatrician, I have to see patients with sickle cell anemia and I know that they are in great pain and discomfort and sometimes they die from it. So it's not a good disease. So it's a great idea to eradicate it. And so the malaria story. Well, actually, it turns out that it's very difficult to prove that. And when I look back, I tracked and tracked and tracked back the original studies on the so-called malaria protection studies, they're actually in a test tube for the most part. So it's not as if it's a great study to begin with. And by the way, it's very difficult to prove things like that because it's an association. They happen to find people in the malaria-infested places where the ones with sickle cell seem to be more protected. So they concocted this great theory and therefore it's good for you and it proves evolution. Okay, so if you say it's that, so what did it prove? How did it improve uh, the human race? Did it become a superhuman race? Did it become better human races? Uh, what was the story there? Uh, well, well, it protects against malaria. It didn't prove that. You said it was associated. So show me, let's say you had a monkey that had sickle cell and he got to become a human, maybe. No, there's no data like that. That sort of thing. So I'm just trying to poke holes in something. When you look at the whole data, when you look carefully at any of these so-called data sets, you'll find that there's real problems with this whole thing. So it's again, it's one of those things that people have probably accepted, and they heard it from their professors who said that this was a great, great mutation. But you'll notice carefully, nowadays, they don't advertise it as much anymore. So it used to be some universities would actually listed on their university blog site, and they say, oh, this is the proof of evolution, uh, and that sort of thing. I don't see that very often now, because I think gradually people are going to be realizing that's not a good advertisement. Wow, and I think there's a clear illustration that you gave, the difference between being in the practical sciences and the theoretical sciences. Those in the laboratory might say, yeah, you make mutations, and we get, you know, the X-Men, you know, these superheroes. 
But in reality, in the field that you're in, whenever there is a, quote, mutation, you say pretty much it's not a good thing. So that's a clear illustration there between, you know, the theoretical and the practical sciences there. And those in the medical field like you bring that, I think, balance to the sciences. The star example, the poster child for decades and decades now the NIH wants to get rid of it. millions and millions of dollars spent to get rid of it and because they want to unmutate it kind of thing or to change it and to do that sort of thing, you know, to do something with the mutation and block it and get rid of it and that sort of thing. So gradually you see that that sort of information is gradually unconsciously or sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe they're blushing. Now, you mentioned earlier about the cell especially the nucleus being as complex as a city, like the city of Shanghai or Honolulu or Manila. Yeah, expound on that a little. And that's something Darwin didn't know because he didn't have the kind of microbiology technology, the microscopes, electronic microscopes, and the things that we have today. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't mean to denigrate Darwin because he was during his time. But just remember, it's a long, long time ago. It's 150 years at least. I think it's nearly 200 years you know, ago. Imagine science 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. I mean, you know, there's just nothing compared to what we know today. Even today, a kid who's in the sixth grade will know more about biology and all the different things in happening in biology than Mr. Darwin, bless his soul. I mean, you know, I mean, he was operating in a vacuum. So he was a theorist, if you wish, by today's kind of thinking. You could argue that he's ahead of his time or whatever you want to argue, but that's from a philosophical viewpoint. It's definitely not from a technological scientific viewpoint, right? I mean, there's no way that he could have, you know, even thought of or planned or devised any experiment to test any of his hypotheses. So all his hypotheses were just hypotheses. They were not proven, they were unprovable, frankly, and uh, they were just merely imaginary. It's like a guy who's writing some kind of sci-fi thing today, and then 200 years later you look at his writings and say, that was pretty interesting, but you don't know a thing about what it's happening now, you know, kind of thing. You, that would be your conclusion. To treat him like he was some kind of god, obviously was not the right thing to do, but he was. Uh, treated like that for a long, long time. So obviously there are lots and lots of holes in there. And people use the word Darwinian in, so, in a very general sense. It's back to this microevolution thing. Because, you know, he's like the, I don't know, the, um, the, the God. <laughs> That's the best word to use, I suppose. Hallelujah, thank you, uh, Darwin kind of thing. But it's like, wait, 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 wait. Well, what did he actually say, you know? So I think that's the biggest problem with this whole Darwinian theory. Yes, and people argue, they say, well, if you look at the DNA of ape and men, you know, it's about 90% identical, or some would even say 95, 97% identical. And so what they argue then is, therefore, you know, some mutations in the DNA then from ape to man, you just mutate part of the DNA and it, it wouldn't be that big of a jump. But what you're saying is it's still... Even if you want to argue that it's 95% it's identical, it's still a huge, huge, massive jump because it's so complex. Isn't that right? That's right. That's exactly the point. A few percent is a, a gargantuan difference. 
is not like a few percent of what we think it's a few percent. All the differences are there in that few percent. And there's also this huge problem with the so-called junk DNA. I don't know if you know, but uh, for a while, uh, there was a whole bunch of DNA, regard the DNA, they only think about the non-junk DNA and look at the differences in different species. Then they suddenly discover, wait, 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 there's a whole bunch of so-called junk DNA, and it was as high at one time as 90%, then went to 80%, then went to 50%. I don't know what it is now. I haven't followed up, and I bet you it's going to be doing down, down, down to, to near zero, because that's a way of science always. At first, what you don't know, you say it's junk, it's not very valuable, so it may, it's nothing to do with uh, this, uh, what we know, and just sort of forget it. But then they look at it, wait, 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 there's some value here. And in this so-called junk DNA, they have now discovered that a lot of this is like crucial information, including some DNA that's sort of the master DNA that's controlling all the other DNA, master conductor of an orchestra. Yeah, you may say that the trombone is the same between the Philharmonic and the Honolulu Philharmonic and the Philadelphia Philharmonic are the same. Okay, but the conductor is different. Well, the music was different then. Everything is different, right? Because the conductor can conduct all these instruments in ways that he wants in a totally different way from another conductor in another city. So yeah, maybe the components look like they're the same, but it doesn't make a difference because the way it's conducted is totally different. So... I think that uh, these things will all unravel sooner or later when they will find out that, wow, there's indeed a lot more differences than we thought there were kind of thing. So that's a usual story. You know, when a scientist stumble on something, they always say, oh, I've discovered it. It's a wonderful thing I've discovered, and this will be forever and ever. And then, wait, the next guy comes along and says, wait, 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 there's another part of this. So uh, the good example, I'd have discovered something like hepatitis, um, and there's hepatitis A, then B, then C, then D, then E, then F, da, 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 down the line, because they found that there are a lot of other variations on this. And the variations are not just variations, they're huge differences. So don't jump to conclusions, as what I always say. Every time you discover a new enzyme, there's another one that's you know similar but different. Another one that's similar and different. And then suddenly you start with one that you thought you discovered, and then there's a whole class of them, there's a whole tribe of them, there's a whole nation of them, practically. So everything is a lot more complicated than you thought. And that's science. And that's the beauty of science. That's because the creator of science is so complex, we can barely understand all of it. We cannot. <laughs> we will keep finding. And that's what makes life interesting. You can have all these PhDs and PhDs and PhDs just studying one little enzyme. Right. Yeah. Like you said, you know, I mean, and they're talking percentages, right? When they say 90 percent, 95 percent. Well, if you break it down in its numbers, I mean, you're still talking, like you said, millions of amino acid combinations in the whole DNA code of that animal or between an ape and a human. That's still millions of amino acid combinations that need to mutate and be good, as you're saying. Right. Uh, Reggie, one of the things I want to ask you, you said this whole idea of Darwin's theory and this mutation, you said it's all going to unravel. That might have shocked some people there. What did you mean by that? You think it's going to come apart? I think it would, uh, frankly, because if people are honest, sooner or later people are going to say, wait, 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 you can't uh, talk about it like that way. So he didn't really say that. So 
gradually they're going to be defrocking him, I think. I think it will take a while because everybody's already kind of brainwashed, so I suppose is the right word, but it's something that is ingrained in everybody's mind. So it's going to be difficult to gradually whittle him down to size, as it were, because, you know, it's just in the mind there. It's a philosophy. It's practically a religion. It's something which is uh, deep-seated. Uh, so I think that the top scientists have to come to grips with this and be candid. And they'll sit down on the table and say, there's an elephant in the room here. There's a problem here. We can't keep sort of perpetuating this myth and we have to acknowledge them. They're not publicly acknowledging it because there's no society of truth in Darwinism or something like that <laughs> that's forming. It would take something like that to get all the top guys around to agree to, okay, let's uh, release it step by step and fess up to this whole uh, mythology. It's a bit too threatening for everybody, so nobody dares sort of touch it, actually, it's because um, it's all in the system and why bucket kind of thing when your grants are at stake and your so-called reputation might be at stake. I read and wrote a lot of one of my faculty, uh, bless his heart, he's a very good man and very um, good researcher. He wrote a very good grant, but he sprinkled it here and there with uh, Darwin. So I'm kind of red ink kind of person, so I delete all kinds of things that are irrelevant to a grant in order to write the grant to, to make it good. So whatever's not relevant, it's like out. We don't talk about non-science and just theories and uh, abstract thinkings. We want, I want facts. A to B, B to C, and that sort of thing. So of course, you know, I he had all these Darwin things, so I deleted them all. I'm just his uh, advisor. So he came to me at first and he said, uh, why did you delete them? I said, are they relevant? Uh, no. Are they real? Uh, no. So why are you putting them in there? Oh, uh, well, that's the way people talk. Yeah, that's the way, that's the way people talk. <laughs> but it's not real. It's not science. It's just the way people talk. So you need them. It makes sense, you know, why well, I don't have to put them in. I just figured that people talk that way. So I talk the, the way that scientists like to talk. So that's part of it. And then joking is helpful sometimes in this world. I remember a, a, a brilliant scientist uh, who gave a great talk in, in school and Great data, fully done on slides and everything. And at the end of his talk, which is brilliant, one of the best talks I heard, and then he concluded the talk with an ocean. And then he said, and this is where we came from. <laughs> so I, I breathed a deep sigh. Breathed. Mr. Not, well, I knew his name, so I, let's call him Adam. Uh, he wasn't Adam, but let's call him Adam. <laughs> so I said, Adam, that was a wonderful talk you gave. It was brilliant and had all kinds of data and slides and everything and uh, very convincing. Can you give me some data for the last slide? And the whole audience erupted into rockets. Wow. No data for that. It's just a whimsical sort of uh, bow to the powers that be. It's a little bit like uh, if I joke about it. It's like at the end of uh, a sermon, somebody might get up and say, praise the Lord. Okay, it's not kind of not like that. It's not kind of like a religion. Okay, you can do that, but can you stick to the science? And then maybe some of this, uh, I don't know what it is, uh, this uh, poetry you can minimize uh, if you wish. But that's the way it goes. It's, it's like poetry. It's basically infused in the system poetically. Yes. Now, many wonder how the Bible is compatible with science. And can you explain why you believe the Bible is relevant for science? Okay, my sort of personal thinking is this. The Bible clearly talks about a creator. He's the beginning of everything kind of thing. And 
as a scientist, I have to approach life with the logic that everything is actually logical and sensible. Why? Because if everything was random, I could not even write a grant. A grant actually is a very strange document. When you write a grant, you're supposed to write the hypotheses. The hypotheses are very clear. It's like, I am going to study this thing and say that A results in B and C results in D. That's my hypothesis. And if at the end of this study, I find that A doesn't result in B and C doesn't result in D, what do I do? The system is the problem. The system is crooked. A should go to B. My conclusion would be that, oops, I'm sorry. The system is working fine. I have the problem. My thinking is not right. A doesn't need to be. A leads to actually X, but I mistook it. I thought that A would lead to B. So what I'm saying is that the system works beautifully and logically, and that's how we do science, because we think, oh, the system must have A to B because, 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 because of all this. Why? Because I'm logical, and I'm assuming that the system is logical. So the system is logical, and the data don't support my logic, then it's my logic that's the problem, not that the system is illogical. Nobody would jump up and say, oh, the system is illogical. No, 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 you're the illogical person. So that's where basic logic comes in. You have to assume that the system is logical and you believe that the system is logical, actually, because that's what it is. The system is logical. And that's why we can do science. If the system was illogical and was random, you know, how would you do, ever do any science? Because all your science would be crazy because A could become B, it could become X. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's no, no logic to the whole system. You can't study it. It's, it's like, I don't know, like uh, Greek gods who could randomly do whatever they want to do. Nonsensical kind of thing. But we know that it's not. The whole body is very logical, very systematic, very sort of a sequential A to B to E, C to D, that kind of thing. The whole system is up to us. We're the poor investigator that has to unravel this and has to think through uh, just like Kepler said, think through the thoughts of God. Think how God would think. And God thinks logically. And the Bible talks about a, a God who is a good, logical God. So we cannot and should not go into crazy theories about science and God at the same time. I mean, frankly, if the body was made by a, a crazy God... <laughs> Uh, Greek goddesses and gods, yeah, the body would be crazy. But no, we're not. We're studying a very good, logical God and what he created. So it's all bound up in science. And if I didn't believe that there was a God, and certainly when I do my research, I would be really frustrated because I don't know what I'm looking at. Yes, Reggie, as we bring this show to an end, what advice would you like to give to those who are going into the area of the sciences and, you know, in the areas of medicine? I think that we should go in with an open mind. <laughs> I've always told people, be skeptical. Scientists are skeptical people, and they should probe, and they try to figure out, because once you're skeptical, you can dig in and dig and dig and find the truth kind of thing. But also be humble. Mm -hmm. You don't know everything, and so more likely we'll find out things which are like, wow, that's really amazing. I didn't know it was that complicated. So if we have humility uh, plus the skepticism, I think that uh, we'll go 
a long way because we can get closer and closer to the truth and yet remain kind of humble that we're still searching and searching. And I think that there's lots and lots of good, good, solid data about the Bible's veracity, about Jesus, his resurrection and all that. So I would study that because if that's true, which I believe, then it makes a big difference in one's life because then you have your orderly sort of relationships with God and man. So if God is truly your God and God is a good, logical God and he's guiding your life, isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. I've used that as my guiding star all my life and I felt that to be a wonderful sort of um, lodestar for life. A lot of people go through life with no meaning, they have no direction, they don't know what they're doing. It's kind of sad. And with that sort of approach, you don't really go anywhere, I suppose, and uh, there's a lot of sort of not good results. But if we have the good God, the wonderful God, who is the one that's guiding us throughout all of life, and he teaches us very simply to love him and to love others as yourself, I mean, that's so wonderful to use those as guiding principles for life because you know that it's a meaningful, sort of a, a good, good way of life. Yes, you know, and you've written some of your thoughts uh, in a series of great books called Coffee Talk uh, with Reggie. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, those books that have just been published hot off the press that you published here. Yes, three books. Coffee with Uncle Reggie is a specific title. The first book is more of my life journey and how I've trusted Jesus and uh, how basically the life has been a life that is blessed, I feel, because uh, I've put my thoughts on the right road. So I always use the motto, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Meaning that seek God and follow his path and things just happen in the right way. Things might uh, happen with lots of trials, but ultimately, God pulls you through. Number two, book number two, is Science Chats with Uncle Reggie. So it's, again, a coffee with Uncle Reggie, book two kind of thing. And it's a little bit of what I've told you today, meaning that I think that uh, science is also a story, a story of God's creation. And so I use lots of stories in the book. It's not uh, didactic at all. It's kind of meant for light reading. And you'll just be reminded of the complexity of God's creation and how wonderful a creation he has. Book three is just out, and it's called Raising a New Generation. Basically, Raising a New Generation to Serve the Lord is the implicit title. It's an encouragement uh, to many who are in church ministry, especially new churches, young churches, especially bicultural, tricultural churches, uh, to actually to focus on how to raise a new generation to serve God in a very complex world and uh, also using lots of little stories in it. It's not meant to be a sermonized uh, kind of a book. It's just meant to be little stories here and there that have blessed my life as I've worked uh, especially with children and youth uh, through my life. Great. You can get those books on Amazon, but also if people want more information on you, the kind of stuff we talked about, any articles or anything like that, where else could they go? They can write me, actually. They can then search reggietales.org, reggietales, R-E-G-G-I-E-T-A-L-E-S dot org, reggietales.org. Um, as a site there for responses, you can write there to me and I'll get the mail, no problem at all. Uh, or if you want to write it down right now, it's rctang at gmail.com. So you can do that also. 
uh, or you can get some of the books. Some are on ebooks, some are on downloadable uh, free ebooks. And you can buy it at uh, Walmarts and all kinds of places. So you can feel free to look at it. A lot of them, they are categorized in different ways. And so, and there's Chinese and English too, in case people are interested in Chinese versions, your friends who are Chinese speaking, maybe, maybe like that too. Uh, so it's quite useful for a wide variety of people. And as a bit of an audio too, uh, in, in Chinese at the Great. That's Reggie Tales, like Veggie Tales, but Reggie Tales with an R. And when you say Reggie Tales, the uh, computer might be try to be funny and said, you mean Veggie Tales? All right. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Reginald Tseng, served for many years as professor at the University of Cincinnati, one of the top neonatologists, doctors in the world. Reggie, thanks for a great interview and being our guest here on Evidence and Answers. It was great. I really enjoyed every moment of it. Thank you all. Bless you all. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.